Welcome to the Parenting with Impact podcast with your hosts, Elaine Taylor-Klaus and Diane Dempster, co-creators of ImpactParents.com, an online community, award-winning blog, and service organization, helping parents all over the world to raise complex kids become capable, independent adults. Elaine and Diane are certified coaches with personal experience raising children with challenges such as ADHD, anxiety, and more, and extensive experience in guiding parents to raise their complex kids with confidence and calm. On the podcast, Elaine and Diane interview experts, bringing you cutting-edge information about your child's challenges, teach you real-life strategies to create lasting change, and demonstrate how coaching can guide you to parent your complex kids one conversation at a time. For the essentials of Elaine and Diane's coach approach to parenting, download a free tip sheet at impactparents.com slash podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to another fabulous conversation in the Parenting with Impact podcast. I am super excited to have this conversation today. My guest is Christy Forbes, and she's going to tell you about herself in a moment. But not only am I psyched about what we're going to talk about, because she's really got an expertise in an area that is rare and and that I have been curious about and learning about for 10 years, but it's very rare to find somebody who can really talk about this syndrome. We're going to talk about pathological demand avoidance syndrome, or I may have the language wrong, and if so, she's going to correct me in a moment. Um, But I'm also excited because Christy and I have been trying to schedule this conversation for, I don't know, four months or something, and we have both been back and forth and back and forth. So actually connecting with each other from Melbourne, Australia to Atlanta, Georgia, and finding that sweet spot is always a challenge. So I'm particularly excited to have you here. Christy, welcome and thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I must say, I think you're being very kind when you say four months because I'm sure it's even longer. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'm equally as excited to be here. We started today and Christy told me she thought I might be the most patient person in the world. And I asked if she could please tell my kids <laughs> and my business partner. No, it's it's really, we're going to have a great conversation. So kick us off. Tell us a little bit about what you do with families of complex kids and how you came to be doing this work. So I am an adult complex kid. Yep. Um, actually, I'm a complex adult. <laughs> So I am autistic, ADHD and PDA myself, and I'm the parent of four children who are also autistic. Three of them are PDA and they are all ADHD as well. I'm an educator and I create principled spaces for families that are communal in learning about and exploring neurodivergent family lifestyle and culture. So families raising neurodivergent children that aren't able to access the support they need openly outside of a private space because there's fear of judgment and criticism and all of that lovely stuff that comes along with, you know, raising neurodivergent children. Right. You were Uh, talking earlier about a positive neurodivergent environment. Yes, positive neurodivergent identity and culture. And part of that culture is the way we raise our children, the way we look after our own essential individual needs. All of that stuff is part of neurodivergent culture. Whether we're neurodivergent or not, if we're raising neurodivergent children, 
then we are living inside the bounds of neurodivergent culture. Right. And most of us listening to this podcast would fall right into that realm. <laughs> yes. So I want to talk about PDA, but before we do, like, how did you get from a point and you had, we had talked earlier and she was saying that she wasn't diagnosed with ADHD till much later. How did you get to 33 without having the autism diagnosis identified? Because that's really your first major turning point. Yeah. I think a healthy dose of um, neuronormative shaming that creates oh. in childhood. When I say healthy, obviously I'm being sarcastic. Right. Yeah, growing up masking really, really well. And for those that aren't aware of what masking is, it's when we're neurodivergent and we learn to fit in and adapt and shut down our organic neurodivergent um, expression, like stimming, all of the things that we do to create balance and to regulate ourselves. So I became a great observer of what my identities that were placed onto me by society what were. So, you know, being a young female, I knew what that meant. I had observed and had very strong messaging about what that meant. It meant being quiet and polite and being all Being a good girl. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But aside from all of that, I grew up in a family that is just so neurodivergent. I mean, my ancestry is just riddled with neurodivergent people. And so, yeah, that becomes your normal. And so I didn't realise that the way I was, I knew I was different, but I just thought, well, my whole family's like this. So, you know, I'm sure there are lots of different people out there. And, of course, there are, but not in the way I thought. But then as I got older, I heard more within my family conversations about anxiety disorder and, you know, the medical talk. So I didn't relate to that because I thought, okay, I am different. I do process information differently. I feel different. I know I'm really sensitive, but I just never thought of myself as being medically disordered. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's why I didn't ever think I was autistic because the message out there about what autism was, was that it was a medical disorder. And However, in those days, it's still, it wasn't for girls. Well, I mean, for the most part. It's right. still, and we're still thinking about autism like it's a, a small white boy rocking in a corner or spinning toys or, you know, so many people still don't know what autism is. But inside of that, I was school refusing I was in trouble with the law as a teenager. I was violent um, towards my parents and in my family home. I was placed into isolation at school. Um, I had a lot of mental health issues. And at 16, I was placed into a psychiatric facility. But nobody ever gave me a diagnosis of anything, not even a mental illness or anything like that so, so it was just behavioral it was you were touch- just a behavior problem yes <laughs> amazing yes, isn't I it believe that? 
Yeah. Well, I can believe that. It's, I feel for you, like my heart goes to you. You know, we were talking earlier about why we both do this work and, and we do this work so that kids today can grow up feeling fully able to express who they are in the world and to not grow up having to hide or having to, what did you say, mask really well and, you know, to be allowed to be full expressions of themselves. But that is not the world you and I grew up in. No, it's not. And I think on top of the masking, there is residual trauma that's unrecognized that comes along with shutting down our inherent selves which is something else that you and I were talking about earlier about, you know, for me personally, neurodivergence, being autistic, ADHD, PDA, those are my identity and culture, not my medical disorders. And so, yeah, I think not being able to live in alignment with that for 33 years, how could there not be trauma? How could there not be? Well, Gabor Mate says trauma isn't what happened to you. It's how you, how pe- the adults around you, how, as a child, the people responded to what yeah. was happening to you. And that's exactly what you're describing is there was, the response was to quash, to shut down yeah. who you really were. So most of the people listening will have some familiarity with ADHD and, and, and autism, right? Mm-hmm. I would say everybody in our community has fairly good sense of what that is. And part of me would like to spend another conversation with you, and maybe we can do that to go down a little bit, a deeper rabbit hole on autism. Mm. But today I'd really like to talk about PDA because it is, it is not a diagnosis that's recognized in the United States. Um, it's one that I discovered about a decade or so ago because it was identified with a group that was doing autism research in the UK. Mm. So can you tell us about what it is and anything you want to tell us about it? So PDA, pathological demand avoidance, I think, you know, in in psychology, we do fixate on the most predominant behaviour and then we create a label from that. Inside of the adult PDA community, many of us prefer pervasive or persistent demand for autonomy or drive for autonomy rather than pathological demand avoidance. Um, so say it again, persistent demand for autonomy. Love that. Yes, or persistent okay. drive for autonomy. It okay. is an expression of autism. So you cannot be PDA without being autistic. It is a subtype of autism. That's what the research reflects at the moment. And as you'll know, the research is, research is really young, having started yeah. in the 80s. So what can I say about it? It is... So let's describe what it is because... It sounds frightening when some people hear it, pathological demand avoidance, although I love your reframe of the language of it. So thank you for that. Um, or persistent demand for autonomy. So it, the reflection is somebody wanting a sense of control or autonomy. Mm. That's how it manifests, yes? That's what it looks like, yeah. So I think the most important thing is for people to know that this is not a conscious choice. It's a neurobiological drive that we have very little say in. So what it looks like on the outside is a person. So if we think about childhood, because it does present very differently for a lot of us in childhood, because we don't have a lot of control in childhood. So a lot of those outcomes, behavioral outcomes will be present more so in childhood. 
And what that will look like is a child that struggles to comply with everyday demands, which are expectations. Those things can range from putting our shoes on when we're asked to, to going to school, to showering, to brushing our teeth. It can be somebody asking us to close a door. Anything that feels like it's being chosen for us mm. or isn't from our own um, choices sets off our anxiety to an extreme level. But that anxiety looks very, very different to a child that presents with, say, generalised anxiety. So we won't appear always to be nervous. Instead, we will appear to be combative or... Oppositional is the word that's often used. Yes, yes, absolutely. And it can get really ugly because the issue there is as parents, we've been conditioned over centuries to be in charge to tell our children what to do, to be and when to do it and how to do it and for how long to do it. Yes. And for a child with a PDA expression, that is demand, 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 which equates to anxiety, extreme anxiety, severe anxiety, trauma. Shutdown. Yes. Or pushback. And the more that happens the more the child will withdraw over time until they will not leave their room because their threat response is activated consistently. So this is what happens with a PDA brain. Our threat response is activated consistently. It's very, very hard for our threat response to be de-escalated, especially when we we don't know our children are PDA. We don't have the correct way of communicating with them in place and managing life. Mm -hmm. So when that threat response is activated and, you know, we are constantly, unconsciously scanning, scanning. our environment for right. threat. Yep. And threat can look like a million different things. It can be a person who feels off. And when I say that, what I mean is a child can go into a classroom and meet a new teacher for the first time. If the teacher is insecure or if the teacher is unsure of themselves or doesn't know how to handle a situation, if a teacher is seeking compliance over relationship, that's going to shut us down in our connection with that teacher, potentially for good. So relationship and connection is everything. Transparency and honesty is everything. Right. What happens is we don't get a choice about this. So if my neurobiology decides or picks up on what it decides is a threat, then my threat response doesn't know the difference between standing on the road and a bus coming toward me and being asked to do my homework. They are both threats. And what my... Of equal importance. They, yes. they feel equally as threatening. Absolutely. And the body is wise, neurobiology is wise, and it doesn't care for details. So I can have a parent saying to me, but homework is really good for you to practice your 
writing skills. The amygdala doesn't care for that. It just wants to know that we're going to live. So it knows its one job is to keep me alive. And if it senses that this is a threat, it will employ a range of strategies and tactics to prevent me from engaging with that demand. So it might be an outright, no, I'm not doing it. That's a panic attack, by the way. That is not an insubordinate child. That's a panic attack. It might be getting a migraine. It might be shutting down. It might be becoming nauseated. It might be running away. We are trying to escape what feels like a life or death situation. And that's a very reasonable way to respond if it feels like a life or death situation. Yes, it actually makes perfect sense that kids would reply and respond in this way. I want to check in with something because I remember, as I, said, I mentioned that I learned about this many years ago because I read about it and I thought I believed my eldest child had this. Um, when I went to my eldest child, they agreed with me. <laughs> so I wasn't, you know, some of the things I remember reading about it were kind of obscure some of the symptoms were things like a particularly high acuity for language. Mm. And so I'm just checking in to see if any of these are still relevant 10 years later. One was was they were actually gifted with language as opposed to what you typically in those days thought autism meant nonverbal. And then there was also something about playing with little characters and creating worlds with characters. Am I misremembering? Is this accurate? No, I think those things have been expanded on over time. They're definitely in there as characteristics. So the first one around language is that that's been shifted into a social characteristic. So we can appear more adept Uh at socialising, but foundationally we lack depth apparently. Not a nice thing to have to sit and say about yourself while you're having a chat, but what it can look like is having a really, really articulate way of expression via language. So being able to articulate really, really well, having a really wide vocabulary. I agree with you, though, that this, I mean, that's not really mutually exclusive from being autistic either. So I think that ties in with different autistic expressions. But the point is that people can overestimate our ability based on observation of how we communicate. Mm -hmm. And in social situations, we tend to make better eye contact. We tend to be more confident. But for me personally, what that's about is teaching myself over time to make eye contact so that other people would not make demands of me and think that I was in control of myself and I won't take anyone's crap. So that's a strategy to keep people at bay. Mm-hmm. Understand completely. Yeah. And what about the, the characters, the expansion? Mm. Because that one really struck me. Yeah, so role play, that's been, that's more aligned with. So we're very, very interested in role play. We use it as a technique to get through life, many children will take on characters. Something (laughs) around this is when autistic people have passions or, you know, known as special interests, which I try not to use because it's quite pathologizing, there are passions. But I think one of the differences is 
not to stereotype. I'm going to stereotype, though. If we take the most commonly understood passions of autistic children, usually we're looking at dinosaurs, trains, things like that. They're usually things. For people with a PDA expression, our passions generally revolve around philanthropy, people, sociology. So we might have a passion for psychology or neurodivergence. It might be around sports stars or um, pop stars. But it also, a, a running theme amongst PDA children is we tend to gravitate towards villains and anti-heroes. I was just going to ask you that. That's so crazy. I was going to say, could it be, because I'm thinking about um, fascination with the macabre and with forensics and some of, and things that, you know, a lot of parents will come to me concerned that their kids are interested in something dark. And, yeah. and I often find that it's, a, it's strangely a healthy expression to navigate fear. Yes. Yeah. A lot of people, before their children are identified as PDA, they've already gone and done the whole antisocial personality disorder tests and looked up, is my child a sociopath or a psychopath, which, you know, we don't use those terms anymore, but Mm. because they can look the same. But there's really good reasons why young people identify with anti-heroes and villains in particular, and that's because we have this war going on inside of us. Yeah. We are constantly fed back to us that we are bad and that what we've done is wrong. And sometimes that anti-hero or that villain may be the only representation in the media of anything that's remotely close to how we feel inside. And, you know, when we think about media for children, it's always based on characters that are good. It's always based on people who are heroes or doing great things. And for children with a PDA expression, if we're having meltdowns, if we're being violent, if we're destroying other people's stuff, because we do, when we perceive that there is a power imbalance, something else that happens is we seek to balance it. And that might be something that looks like, and this is one example from me when I was seven years old in grade two, and I've never forgotten it because our own behaviour shocks us. Right. Being in line and a girl in my class saying, I have all these Easter eggs If anybody would like an Easter egg, you need to line up at recess and wait patiently and I might give you an Easter egg. Anyway, everybody was lining up, begging for these chocolate eggs and doing all the things she was telling them. And me, being a PDA, I was not, no, it feels (laughs) so wrong. I was going to say that's just going to trigger you. Yeah. We're not doing this. No, this is really unfair. No, sorry, you're not holding that unnecessary power over all of these people. But I don't think this at the time. It's not conscious. Right. And this is the other struggle when we're children. We have these behaviours that we know are outrageous and we don't understand them. So we turn on ourselves. But in that moment, I waited in that line. (laughs) And when I got up and it was my turn to come to the front, I grabbed that crate of eggs and I crushed it into smithereens. And 
you know, there were constantly parents coming up to school complaining about me and children were not allowed to play with me. And it was a horrible experience not knowing why I behaved that way. Yeah. You said something about fairness Mm. that really jumps at me, that part of it, it felt unfair. Yeah. And it was. was. And and you were going to write that wrong in some way. I mean, if it was up to my conscious choices, I probably would have done it a very different way. Of course. Well, and hindsight of maturity might help a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) But also, this is the really disabling nature of PDA. Yeah. We don't get that choice as children. We don't have that insight and we don't have the understanding of our behaviour. So we will do things outrageously to, we call it social levelling. And something that underlies that is the other characteristic where people think that we don't respect or identify social hierarchies. It's not that we don't identify them and we don't respect them, but we have a hard time accepting that they will be used as a form of inequity and equality. Mm -hmm. Again, fairness. Yeah. Right. So that sense of that incredible, powerful drive for social justice exists within us from the time we're born. You'll see it in siblings. If one sibling gets a smidgen more water in their cup, the PDA child will almost have a meltdown about it. That's not fair. You spend more time with my brother than you do with me. So the thing about that is I recognise social hierarchies but I have this inherent drive for fairness, for equality, for equity at all times. Yeah, I I share that with you. We were talking earlier about the value, about how coaching is a modality that really can support parents of kids with a lot of complex issues, including PDA. And one of the reasons there are a lot of things in my head right now, but one of the reasons I think it worked so well with my kids was because of it, it's a great way to balance yes. that drive for social justice. You know, what I always said to my kids was, each of you will get what you need from me and it won't be the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so I, I acknowledged the need for social justice and gave them another way to see access to it. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's a very coach approach. It's everybody yes. will get what they need and the needs won't be the same. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and I love that you've mentioned that because that is where we will see that that great need for equality between a child and a parent and that Mm -hmm. won't be really accepted because of our conditioning as adults. And I think this is the hardest thing about parenting PDAs. I've had to learn, and even though I'm a PDA myself, I've had to learn and I have to learn at every moment of every day parenting my children. Yeah. I always have to shift the focus away from them and bring it back to myself. What's being triggered in me? Where does it exist? Is it in them or is it in me? Is it a trauma? Are my needs being unmet? What is it that's, you know, sitting with the discomfort mm. and really going in and looking at why this is hard for me? Why? Well, 
I just, what you're speaking to that's so hard for so many parents of complex kids of all kinds Mm. is that the change starts with us. Yes. And I want it to be about my child because then I can fix that. But that's just not how it goes. The work starts here. And the work starts with letting go every day of all of the, the things that we're holding that are preventing us from being in relationship yes. over compliance, as you said earlier. Right? Yes. And that collaborative approach is, is antithetical to how most of us were raised. It really is. And not only that, something else you and I were talking about before is oh, that inside of neurodivergent culture is that we create a life that works for us, that allows us to thrive. And it won't look the same as other people's lives. And that has to be okay. But the challenge there is that for many of us, it feels extremely isolating because we do receive the unsolicited advice, however well-intentioned, of family and friends and professionals and (laughs) Over time, you know, there are some wonderful, wonderful supportive professionals in the world, but there are some really uninformed people as well. And at the end of the day, we're all just human beings, right? Yeah. It's okay to withdraw from systems and supports that do not help us to thrive. Yes, yes. On so many levels. I would love to continue to talk about 12 different things that have come up in the last five minutes. Because <laughs> I could talk to you forever. And I'm, and I, we are so much in alignment in, in so many pieces of, what, of the work we do and the passion that we bring to these communities that we serve. And I'm aware that we are all already well past the time that was recommended. But you and I both know time is, you know, it's its own thing. What is time? What is time? So, Christy, tell people how they can find out more about, about your work and, and how you support parents. So, you can, the quickest way is to visit my website, which is www.christyforbes.com.au. And that will be in the show notes for everybody listening. It's christyforbes.com.au, and we will have all that information for you. Thank you. Right. Before we wrap, two things I want to ask you. First, I want to ask you, is there anything else we haven't touched on that you want to make sure that you leave with parents today? Anything you want to make sure they take away or that you've at least shared? You are the expert on yourself and your child. You know your child better than any professional, better than any therapeutic approach. And you may not feel that way, but along the line somewhere, that thread that connects us to our child, it's slowly chipped away at when we're raising, you know, complex children with complex needs. But intuition is like a muscle and with exercise and with practice, you know, it gets strong again. And this can be a beautiful, beautiful experience no matter where your starting point is. Love that. Thank you. That's a beautiful, beautiful way to close. I had asked you at the beginning I sort of gave you the heads up that we like to ask our guests for a favorite motto or quote or some something to leave with the day. What do you got for us? This is called Let It Go by Dana Folds. Let go of the ways you thought life would unfold. 
the holding of plans or dreams or expectations. Let it all go. Save your strength to swim with the tide. The choice to fight what is here before you now will only result in struggle, fear and desperate attempts to flee from the very energy you long for. Let go. Let it all go and flow with the grace that washes through your days, whether you received it gently or with all your quills raised to defend against invaders. Take this on faith. The mind may never find the explanations that it seeks, but you will move forward nonetheless. Let go and the wave's crests will carry you to unknown shores beyond your wildest dreams or destinations. Let it all go and find the place of rest and peace and certain transformation. I had that printed and on my fridge for a decade to get me through the hardest moments. It's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. I, I often say that parenting is a daily exercise in letting go. That's really what parenting is more than anything else. Absolutely. Oh, thank you. That's lovely. Christy, it was worth the wait. Thank you for your time, for your wisdom, for your beautiful energy, and for the work you're doing in the world. Thank you. All of that back a million times. Thank you so much. No, it's a pleasure. To those of you listening, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for giving of your time and your energy and your effort. Thank you for what you're doing for yourself and your kids. At the end of the day, that's what makes the difference. Talk to you next time, everyone. You've been listening to the Parenting with Impact podcast with Elaine and Diane. For more information on the Impact Parents community or to join Sanity School for Parents, please visit impactparents.com. If you like what you've heard, please share this podcast with friends who need similar guidance and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.